Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Geopolitical Pickle. Today, as always, I will be joined by, with my colleague Ronald Worsworth. How are you doing, Ronald? Not too bad, Wanfrey. How are you? Not too bad. Well, we've been off for a bit, so like... Yeah, we've had a summer break, so we're glad to be back recording. It's a uh, new content. It's been a long time. There's many things that have happened, man, and we haven't really put attention on And the world of geopolitics never stands still. It never stands still. We really need it. <laughs> you want to be our intern? <laughs> Anyway, today we will be talking about uh, one of the main topics that have been going on this summer, which are the successive coups in uh, Africa. Particularly, we're going to be looking at what's happening in Niger, what's happening in Gabon, what's happening, and then obviously getting uh, a little bit into what's happening in the Sahel in, gen in general and potential threats, instability, or changes that may come up uh, from this uh, course. Just as an introduction, Ronan, could you give us uh, what happened in Niger? Yeah, so I think I'll get us started there. On the 26th of July, we woke to the news that the presidential guard had surrounded the, the presidential palace in the army, the capital of Niger. And after initially conflicting reports over the armed forces on which side they were supporting, it turns out that they had joined forces with the presidential guard and overthrown the president. Ali Bongo, uh, sorry, the, pre the president, Mohamed Bazoum. If there's some miss, we're really sorry, but there's a lot of names coming in today. So they overthrew, they announced that they'd overthrown the president, Mohamed Bazoum. And this marked the seventh country within the Sahel to experience a successful coup d'etat just in the last, um, since 2020, so in the last three years. And... Niger is actually quite an interesting case, I think, to start with because its reasons are similar to some of the other countries, but also different. And also, I believe it has an outsized geopolitical impact because of the strategic importance of Niger to different allied partners, such as the US, such as Europe, France, and then the regional dynamics with Russia actually coming into the Sahel and creating a... A different relationship for a lot of these governments. Yes, I mean, it would be interesting to touch upon a little bit which are the entities that are there. We know that uh, France has a former colonial power and really deep economic ties. For example, uh, France depends on 20% of its uh, uranium depends on uh, exportation exports from Niger, imports from Niger, sorry. Um, then you obviously have a military base uh, where the troops that were ousted from uh, Mali, they were uh, then located in Niger. Uh, you have the United States with the biggest uh, drone military base in the world in, uh, in Agadez, also in, in Niger. And uh, you have uh, other actors that are around. You have um, economic investment from China. You have uh, political influence in the surrounding area from Russia. And in the end, you have a mixed uh, situation where, especially after the, the coups in Mali and uh, Burkina and the insecurity and the insecurity in the region, uh, there is uh, even more introduction of other actors that were not there uh, that deep. Vocally, uh, Russia, which is... Uh, Apparently, they were like Wagner Group had activities in in Mali. There's also been talks of a proximity of the Burkina government to to Russia. And now, although uh, apparently, and at first sight, it doesn't seem like the coup in Niger was uh, motivated, 
uh, by a pro-Russian uh, uh, idea or so on. It is true that uh, it is taking this rhetoric that already Mali and Burkina had, which are uh, anti-colonialist, uh, anti-French, and uh, going towards a little bit pro-Russia, if you check. And the images of the demonstrations in, in Niamey, for example, like you have the Niger flag, the Russian flag, and we've commented among us, sometimes the North Korean flag. Yeah. Which was, uh, that was a surprise to see. And this anti-imperial, anti-colonial messaging has been pushed for a long time by Russian propaganda agencies within this region of West Africa to try and drive even higher rates of anti-French sentiment. So anti-French sentiment has been there for a long time in a lot of the, the post-colonial space of France, where... France actually still has quite a, a difficult relationship with a lot of their old colonies where the colonies are asked to pay repatriation for the development that France had. So, which is very different to say the English ex-colonies, which were kind of left alone at the process of decolonization, um, maybe with some political leverage and some political attempts at manipulation, but the French have been much more involved with the internal governance of these countries. And so that, that's brought about a lot of the frustrations. Just to go into Niger, speci Niger specifically, um, we look at why it's potentially become much more important than, or, or been paid a lot more attention to than Mali and Burkina Faso. When at face value, Mali and Burkina Faso are very similar, very low developed economies. Niger is even worse. It has the highest... Uh, birth rate in the world, 6.8 children per woman in the country. It's got the youngest population. The youngest population in the world, which is under 15 years old, is the average age. Um, the reason why Niger is actually more important, is especially in the wake of those coups in Mali and Burkina Faso, this, this region of the Sahel with those two countries, with Niger, with Chad, with Mauritania, um, that's been part of the G5 Sahel, which was aimed at combating these Islamic insurgency groups namely Jainim, Jamat al-Nusra. Um, uh, exact name, because it's also a little bit... Uh, I just call him Jainim. You call him Jainim, yes. Call him Jainim and we can go with it. Yeah. Jamat al-Nusra al-Islam wal-Muslim. I just say Jainim. So namely Jainim. Uh, who are affiliated with Al-Qaeda and probably the biggest stronghold of Al-Qaeda remaining um, in the world, as well as ISWAP, which is the Islamic State in the West African province, who's obviously associated with the Islamic State and is also the largest hub of the Islamic State still remaining after the war in terror in the Middle East, etc. So these two groups, as well as smaller, there's, there's a multitude of smaller uh, Islamic jihadi groups as well, but those are the two main ones that have caused the biggest disruptions in the region. And for Europe, that uh, has created a, a bit of a security dilemma because they don't want these big insurgent, Islamic insurgency groups just down to the south when they've already got a migration crisis coming, crisis coming across from countries such as um, Tunisia, Algeria, where the boats come across and Libya. They, Libya. And we could go back to the situation around the 2013, 2014, 2015, when there was a spate of uh, terrorist attacks within Europe um, from people that had immigrated from North Africa specifically. And so allowing these terrorist groups to be propagated with there uh, was not really a good option that, that Europe wants to entertain. So they've spent 
a lot of money, over 1 billion euros, as part of this G5 Sahel mission to try and combat this Islamic insurgencies. And overall, it was quite successful, I would say. I mean, uh, for example, in that, I can uh, criticize it a little bit. Uh, that interventionism started in 2012 when uh, uh, the forces of uh, independent uh, Asawat, which is basically uh, northern, the northeast part of Mali, um, it was controlled by the Tuaregs, which are an ethnic group, which is different from the one in the capital. And um, they've been Tuaregs, they're basically uh, nomads mostly. And uh, they've got the trouble with the central Malian government for decades now. And at, at one point, they allied with uh, with Islamist groups, and they almost overrun Bamako, the capital in the south. But uh, the government called in um, France to help with the country with the country insurgency. That was Operation Serval, lasted uh, until uh, from 2013. Till 2014, and then in 2014 we start with Operation Barkham, which was supposed to like. Mm -hmm. Well, it's got many different uh, uh, goals uh, in the eight years that was in place. Um, but initially, it's to improve the security situation in in Mali and thus in the entire region, because uh, geographically speaking, it is uh, relatively understandable why these countries have this insecurity because most of their borders are totally porous and uncontrollable. The G5 Sahel was put there in order to try and make those borders more controllable, but it is really difficult. It's literally millions of, of square kilometers of land, of desert with like few population centers, um, with a, a history of uh, non, um, with a cultural history in those regions that don't necessarily have to go with the with the one of the capital of the state yeah exactly there's no presence of the exactly of the state forces within these border regions which are often called black spots i guess exactly they're ungoverned areas and can create a lot of security issues where these groups are able to operate without much interference from the state mm -hmm. especially with such weak, weak state structures as we're saying within those countries so going then from europe because obviously that's europe's motivations there. We also have the US who supported this uh, operation with their base being in Niger. And the, the US has been the, the leading drivers of the war against terror since the Middle East days. With, uh, and so this was just an extension of that. Yeah, they the, 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 the new frontier. Exactly. exactly. The new frontier. And, and so the, the U.S. has two massive air bases which cost in excess of hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars to build and still tens of millions of dollars to operate every year. Uh, one in the Army, U.S. Air Base 101, and U.S. Air Base 201 in Agadez, which is, as you said, the biggest drone base mm. in the world. And these have fully functional runways that are capable of taking the C-130 Hercules massive, massive um, transportation aircraft. So these are serious bases for the U.S., and for their strategic presence in the whole region and that's why the u.s hasn't really been because france has been super vocal against these schools and so on the u.s although it's been like uh, vocal like it said that they condemn the coup exactly yeah, but it's not been super enforcing so like we have seen anthony blinken just calling for democracy to prevail blah 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 but they've not been necessarily supportive of the threats of intervention which we'll touch on now maybe so within the region we've seen these other coups and there's never been any real there's been a political condemnation but there's never been any threat of any military action against the coup leaders uh previously to the this coup in in niger 
And this time ECOWAS, uh, which is the Economic Cooperation of West African States, um, which is a 15-country block, uh, of which all three, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, are members of, um, although everyone that's had a coup has been suspended from the from the group. But suspended doesn't mean exactly suspended. So they they have never previously threatened intervention, except this time we've seen a lot of threats of intervention. Whether it would actually materialize or not is another issue because of the costs. I mean, a lot of these countries are also very poor themselves, and so like their the cost- military is not even extremely organized. Exactly. I think they would be. I would say they would be strong enough to overthrow the the Niger regime, the junta there. Even though Mali and Burkina Faso have said that they would support them, mm-hmm. if you look at the security situations in both of those countries, they're really not doing a good job of their own domestic security, let alone being able to stop an ECOWAS intervention. And the reason, the reasons, maybe behind the ECOWAS intervention and and why it this time might be different. So we've seen the Nigerian president, uh, Bolo Tinubu, take over the presidency of ECOWAS recently, and he himself only won an election in February. And because of that, he said that under his watch as president of, the re- of this, there will be no more coups tolerated within ECOWAS. Uh, and then pretty much soon after he's announced that, we see the coup happen in, in Niger. And... Nigeria has actually quite a big stake in what happens in Niger. As people may know, uh, in the north northeast region of Nigeria, where it borders Niger, within the Lake Chad Basin area, um, that is the stronghold of Boko Haram, who shot to power, shot to fame when they captured the Nigerian schoolgirls back in 2014 and have committed plenty of other terrorist attacks and they sort of have ebbed and flowed in strength um, over over the past few years, they're much weaker than they were at the height of their power in about 2014. But uh, a weak central government in Niger would allow Boko Haram to sort of retreat back to the border areas there and regroup and strengthen, and then pose a much bigger threat to the Nigerian government. So Nigeria has a, an outside. That's part of the reason I'd say they have an outsized um, reason to want to intervene on behalf of ECOWAS. Um, but also because of the reasons, as we said, with France uh, mm-hmm. losing influence there and they've got their own military base there with 1,500 troops stationed, they have also wanted to support this ECOWAS intervention because they've sort of got nothing to lose. They're, they're, they're being put as a scapegoat behind the, the political situation. Um, I mean, it's a, in a way, it's a legit scapegoat. Like, uh, it is, yeah. There's, there's legitimacy to it yeah. for sure, exactly. But then they've got nothing to lose. So they said they'll they'll support this this coup. Whereas the US has a lot to lose. They still have these bases. At the moment, the military junta has not said that the US has had to leave. As you said, they've sort of left the US out of the question entirely. It's all been focused on France. So the US is trying the path of diplomacy. They're not threatening any intervention at the moment because they've got more to lose within the country in terms of these two very important strategic bases. Yes, and where does here enter... Uh... The well, first it is true that with the security situation, like Nigeria may have those uh, those ideas of entering Niger, but I also feel that there may be um, even an own fear within Nigeria that this may happen uh, in the short term. Maybe do you see that happening? Or I think Nigeria is 
is too stable for that to happen. They they had the elections recently, uh, although there was lots of criticism internationally about different um, irregularities. Say, overall, it was quite a democratic process. I think compared to a lot of the other African elections, yes, um, the there was some pro protests, but actually, in my opinion, Tanubu so far has taken a bit kind of um, an extreme approach to the presidency compared to previous Nigerian presidents. Like if we look at just a few examples, there's the fuel subsidy, which has been in place in Nigeria since the 70s. And this has been tried to get rid of for over over 30 or 40 years by different presidents. And they always back down in the face of protests. Um, and Tanubu has been able to eliminate the fuel subsidy because it costs the government about 60% of government revenue went to a fuel subsidy, which makes no sense for an oil-producing country, but obviously by removing it, the fuel price goes up, inflation increases, so it's wildly unpopular. But he's been able to stick to his guns and implement this fuel subsidy, even in the face of massive protests, and it's what the country needs, but no previous president has been able to do it. And I'd say that is a strong indicator of his um, relative feeling of strength within the government, that he is able to not back down in the face of big protests. Um, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily coming from the, his fears of a coup within his own country, but every coup in, in the region creates more instability yes. uh, and creates more pockets of um, maybe dangerous places where, as we said, terrorist Islamic groups can thrive, where these are big drives of in instability, and maybe then they could eventually grow into being more present in Nigeria and then destabilizing the security situation in there. So, yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily coming from his own fear, but from a fear of the greater uh, deteriorating security situation in general. Then I would like to talk a little bit of like how does, how has that security situation evolved a little bit, especially in the countries where there's uh, now a different outside influence. So we're talking that uh, Mali and, and in general the Sahel, uh, G5 Sahel comprises Mauritania, well, used to comprise, uh, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Burkina, and Chad. Mm -hmm. uh, out of them, uh, three of them uh, have uh, had a coup in the last uh, 24 months. Well, we can say even for Chad is like... For Chad, there's... Chad is kind of a bit of a strange situation. The president, Idris Deby, died on the front lines of battle, apparently against insurgencies, which was a very strange story. So Adder, weird. His son took over. His son, Mohammed, Mohammed Debbie took over the presidency, who was the leader of the armed forces uh, and hasn't had an election. So effectively, it is a coup d'etat uh, because the military has taken over the operations of the state. It's kind of different, and it's actually been super tolerated by France because of France's strategic interests. Both Niger and Chad were the two closest French allies. And so it's kind of, there's actually been four coups realistically, but that one again is is a different style of coup to what we've seen in, in Niger and in Burkina and in Mali where the president has been detained or, or overthrown, whereas this time the president was killed and then the military took over in a apparent transitional government. But yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that sense, what, what I wanted to mention is, so this G5 Sahel was created to try and fight uh, insecurity, to try and fight insecurity, and to try and wait, basically counteract the Islamist groups in the region and so on. Uh, the violence in the region, however, didn't actually reduce. It grew in the past uh, decade, 
uh, security levels grew, although, yes, the centers of power were controlled and supported by particularly uh, Western forces, aircraft, and, and technology. So uh, The EU, the U.S., and France. Yeah, we have to we have to think that there are several missions. There's MINUSMA, they're used to... Which is the, the UN mission. Exactly, the UN mission. We have two civilians and one counter-terrorist uh, European Union mission. Mm-hmm. We had in Mali, UCAP, uh, UTM, and uh, UCAP, UTM, well, American. Um, we have... The U.S. also invested money in the region and with, uh, as we are mentioning, drone bases and uh, basically logistic support. It's not uh, not that many troops on the on the ground. But the international fo- forces at one point in the Sahel amounted for 20-something 20, 20 thousand, thousand mm. soldiers, uh, which given the even the capacities of these states, for example, Mali adds its height, uh, the, for, uh, the armed forces of Mali, the FAMA, had around 14, 15,000 soldiers. So we're talking about a really important uh, bulk of uh, foreign or let's say international because uh, well, obviously Sahel in the end, it's their own troops, but uh, within another scheme. Um, and now one of the reasons for this course, like one of the reasons that has been given uh, in, in Mali, in Burkina and in, and in Niger has been that insecurity, that rampant insecurity, but uh, with the examples that we have from from Burkina and from Mali, in Burkina since the coup, there's been an increase of forty five percent of uh, sorry forty six percent of territory affected by by militant Islamist activity, and there's tripled the victims of militant Islamic activity since the coup happened in comparison with the eighteen month period right before the coup. And um, it's very similar. It's very similar in Mali. There's also been a, a huge uptick in attacks around Tripoli as well there, and they've also lost about forty percent of the territory to Islamic groups since the coup, which was staged by the military for the reasons of insecurity. So then it it's really it it doesn't make sense for now Niger to use that excuse. It's the statistics prove that 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 the situation deteriorates rapidly after the security forces um, that take over. Uh, governance and kick out Western troops and have replaced them typically with Russian uh, Wagner troops, mm-hmm. um, the security situation has not in- improved at all. It's actually gotten worse. And I mean, I just want to say quickly now on Wagner, because that's a whole another thing altogether, which we'll have to cover eventually. But it's it's very hard to say exactly what will happen with these Russian Wagner forces um, in the wake of Prigozhin's death. But Russia wants to take over these operations. That's a whole nother episode, I think. But in the end, it's uh, we can summarize it a little bit. In like Russia is looking for to open the for the front of Ukraine to Africa so that they can get more support with uh, international yeah. institutions and so on. They've done a big job in the last year and a half in in Africa trying to like influence and it helped them erase sacks. Help. Uh, there was one thing that is like. We should study like the this policy of bringing Russian flag so that if there is a coup, there is at least three hundred people with a Russian flag because if not, where would they get you? Yeah, like you bring your Russian flags and so on. Um, but also, we do have some results already from Mali, although it's not official, but it's claimed that and it's more or less known that Wagner was working with uh, with uh, the Malian with the Malian military after the coup. And there's been reports uh, from the UN that say that they've committed. Uh, that they commit genocide. Yeah, yes. 
that they committed war crimes and that they've been attacking yeah. civilians. And, and there's mass graves with in, yes. in villages of small ethnic groups and yeah. So, like the first the first impression, at least, is that uh, the security situation uh, doesn't necessarily get better, uh, at least for the white uh, population or for all of it or for the minority ethnic groups. Also, I think it will be important to note why is economically this region important, uh, particularly this triad. And then we can go, I think, into... Into both. Yeah, I think so. And to, like, Senegal, Rwanda, this stuff that is going on there. But uh, just to point out, uh, can you give us a little bit of uh, an idea of uh, why is this region economically important? So... These countries are all very poor, yet they're still re very resource-rich. So as you mentioned earlier, say Niger has um, large uranium reserves. They supply a lot of France's total uranium. Um, they also have a large amount of gold, which is mined and exported. That's the two major um, sources of income for, for Niger. While Mali also has gold, has lithium. Um, they, they opened some massive lithium mines recently in, in Mali. And Burkina Faso also has um, different different uh, gold mines and i believe i don't know what they have there's also there's also stock uh, livestock that they that they produce like uh, basically it was exported to france previously uh, you have iron ore uh, from uh, mauritania which is in the region too um chad is a major oil, oil producer and uh, and the new pipeline from Nigeria and Chad was go due to go across Nigeria mm -hmm. to service the European market. So it's also an important corridor to be able to protect this uh, oil and gas pipeline. See, that's another reason. That's another reason why I thought that uh, Tinubu, Nigeria's president, would be more willing to use ECOWAS. Possibly, yeah. As they export indirectly oil to 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 a Europe that is looking to diversify their their energy source, their energy source away from Russia. Yeah. Although, I mean, sketchy, though, because, I mean, geographically speaking, from the beginning, this uh, pipeline had to go through Niger, had to go through Algeria or Tunisia. Or Libya, yeah. Or Libya. It's like, mm, you're not like the closest friends with any. <laughs> so it's a little bit sketchy. But yes, I mean, in the end, um, these countries, although they are economically poor and... Um, they're, they're resources. They're clearly uh, underdeveloped in many aspects of the state system. Um, they have uh, resources, yeah. and uh, one another of the reasons we think this anti-colonial uh, rhetoric is we can get our resources back, blah blah. blah. Like you have really big uh, French corporations like Total or Orano that like um, manage these yeah. sites. What I would disagree though is that uh, with uh, other forces entering in the in the picture, they would not take over these productions because in the end I mean we've seen Wagner do that for, in Mali for instance mm. while France has been removed Wagner comes in and gives security support in exchange for access to gold mines mm -hmm. uh, which allows a, another income source for Wagner and for Russia to evade sanctions so as you say you're just replacing one um, one this external actor they're literally replacing one with the other and but then who, who the people that benefit from that are the people in power within the the sea, which is when the military are supported, they've got external security provider, and then they're the ones reaping the benefit from partnering with external actors. So now to speak about uh, yeah, no, I think we made a like a big picture of like of Niger and Niger, um, and then Chad, uh, 
Mali Burkina. And then like going away from necessarily those countries just to a bit lower down in Africa to go to Gabon, which has also had a coup just um, two weeks, Recently. last week, two weeks ago. Um, the president there, uh, Ali Bo Bongo, was ousted um, following elections. I think they were on Saturday, were, August 23rd yes. was the elections. And hours, hours after the result was announced. Which was Wednesday, yeah, the, the following Wednesday, the results were announced. He declared himself the winner and... Yet, then the military intervened and said that they're taking back control because of the lack of democracy, because of the lack of development. And again, so this is kind of a different type of coup to the other ones, mm -hmm. because this is similar to a lot of the African countries where the Bongo family, so Ali Bongo himself had been in power since 2009, mm -hmm. and his father had been in power since 1960. It's a family rule of 55 years. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, and Just, and the, the, the leader of the coup now, still, like, this is something that uh, I don't want to say it is the president of the, it is the cousin of the president, but it seems like. But that's the rumors, but but again, I, I wouldn't say that this is a family affair necessarily. I think this is the military seizing power at an opportunistic moment now that they've seen the Niger Hunter um, kind of weather the storm of external um, players We've seen ECOWAS threatening intervention, blah, blah, blah. None of that has happened. So so maybe after then the results of this election, they thought this is an opportunistic moment to seize power. Well, from the Bongo family who have been in power, as you said, 55 years. It's 55 a, years. That's a dynasty of of of, um, of ruling a country. And within that time, there's been mass atrocities committed by the Bongo regime. And this is a very African situation where the Bongo family themselves... Uh, Ali Bongo's father was one of the richest people in the world for a long time. And yeah. Gabon remains a very, very poor country. Ali Bongo himself is stupidly rich. Like, he has houses, as you said, in the States. He's got heaps yeah. of land. He's got land yeah. in Europe. He's got land, land in Morocco. Land. Yeah. And, and they, they've looted the resources. Gabon has, is a very small country. It's got a population of around two and a half million people, something like that. But in the 60s, they found offshore oil and... They've become a very rich country because of that. Mm -hmm. Well, they could have become a very rich country, but there's become a very rich family because of yeah. that. And we see this kind of uh, situation play out in different areas across Africa. Uh, we've got we've come to what the what is being called, uh, and this is also in the media. It's a little bit catchy, but it is true. It's a circle. It's a the the coup band. Uh, Although Gabon's not in the coup belt. Yeah, it's, not in the coup belt. <laughs> but it's like a spillover of the coup belt, yeah. in my opinion. I mean, it, you see that moment of, in a way, disconcert uh, within uh, Africa. I mean, the African Union has done nothing. The African out, Union has done nothing. I mean, but they, they put out statements, Union. that's what they do, and say they put out statements, but they haven't managed to do anything in Sudan. They haven't managed to do anything in Mali. They haven't managed to do anything in, in uh, Burkina Faso, in Burkina Faso, Guinea. They're nowhere like exactly there even in even in uh in sudan uh which also uh well right now is in a state of civil war basically between uh the military that that uh ousted uh president uh um, al bashir al basir in 2021 and the special forces well the rsa which were which were the second for they both which combined were to they were combined to overthrow um, al bashir in 2021 now they've come into a power struggle and, and the african union managed to do 
nothing. But also in Ethiopia two years ago, uh, with the Tigray situation, like yeah. it was, it's been an inaction that uh, it's perceived, in my opinion, by by certain actors in the African gov in the African uh, continent, and they can uh, and and. Dare and what we've seen in response to these coups within the country, say say in Gabon right now, mm -hmm. we see the youth in the streets celebrating the coup. And it's a complex situation, but the reason that they're celebrating the coups is because this one family had been enriching themselves off the country for a long, long time, and now they see there's a possibility for change. The elections were held just uh, a few weeks ago, and, and again, um, Bongo was declared the winner, when these are basically sham elections. The African Union sits by and does nothing about these sham elections, and so there's no real opportunity for people to change government in any legitimate way. So then the only way that they see to actually affect the change is if the military um, comes and overthrows the government. But the problem then is it's basically replacing one bad regime for maybe even more oppressive regime. You, like, exactly. And, and, and so, exactly. It's, you, you might have some hope as opposed to just being stuck in the same thing. Because on the same weekend as the Gabon, Gabonese elections mm. was the Zimbabwean elections. And the one party, ZANU-PF, has been in power since independence in 1980, uh, ruled for 37 years by Mugabe, who was overthrown in a military coup by his second in charge from the same party. Emerson Menengaga, the president now. And Menengaga won the dispute elections 2018. And I already predicted exactly what the results would be before it happened because it's so obvious they they just uh, they always have a veneer of like um, of being the illegitimate elections. They say, okay, we won fifty five percent of the vote because that's a believable number. Um, you can say, yep. And I think we both both candidates claim themselves uh, winner, but sound of yeah. Exactly, because because they own the, the government institutions, so that the electoral commission is 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 run by the the state. Um, so if we look at Zimbabwe and then Gabon, they're almost the same situation, but one uh, didn't have the military overthrow them because they they've got a good stranglehold on the military. Mm. And in Gabon, I guess the military just had enough and thought it was an opportunistic time to move, and yet. This is not just within Zimbabwe. This is not just within Gabon. We see other countries. We see Rwanda, Uganda, exactly. Cameroon. There's just many countries. Hours after the coup in, in Gabon, you have the president of uh, of uh, Cameroon. Um, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, Paul Villa resuffling ninety percent of his uh, military leadership. And he's he's a ninety-one year old. He's a ninety-one. He was very sick last year, and there was rumors that he was going to be overthrown because he's a. 91-year-old man that's been in power for over 40 years. Paul Gugame has been in power since 1995 in, in Rwanda and is very authoritarian, although... Arguably economic development has happened. Economic development has happened, but he also then went and reshuffled his, his security forces, yeah. trying to shore up their, their position um, and trying to prevent any opportunity for a coup in the country. And it's clear that whether it works or not, they do perceive that threat that is coming either from a, from the military or from a support of the population to a military. Exactly, you know, exactly. Which is even more. Like they cannot, for example, um, Ali Bongo in Gabon, like when he made this uh, video from his house, because he's in house arrest, made this video, he didn't even... The video doesn't seem... He doesn't even seem to address the population in Gabon. He addresses his internet, like... 
our international friends, our international friends, uh, come and, and help come me. And help, uh, come and help us because like they're holding my family or whatever. It's like that's because you're not uh, that convinced that the population will actually go for you. And because you have reason. Exactly, exactly. Because we see people out there celebrating. Like in 2016, there was a disputed election in in Gabon, and the security forces went out and massacred a bunch of the opposition's forces. So there is not without reason to fear the population. Exactly, not even the opposition. The opposition that was in the elections, uh, they've said, okay, we want a return to a civilian rule, but we're actually happy of having Ali Bongo ousted. Like, yeah. we are like, we want democratic, blah, blah, obviously. Um, but they weren't unhappy with uh, with uh, Ali Bongo being, being ousted because there is this creep. And that leads me a little bit into, um, uh, because I feel like we've done a pretty complete like uh, overview of what's going on. But now I want to put a little bit the focus on what may happen, because it's just gone so fast, I'm pretty sure that we will be uh, wrong with the timeline, or there may be some country that we are uh, missing from the picture that may, that may jump onto the main scene. But because of what we mentioned, that uh, the youth seems to be at least not against the military coups. Like I wouldn't say necessarily because that data we don't have it, but I wouldn't say like they're extremely euphoric and supportive. Yes, we see videos uh, with demonstrations and so on, but obviously like those can be uh, created by the regime in place. So it's not like, it's not the, the, the best information source. But knowing that there is this disenchantment uh, of the youth with the African leaders and that um, this has been going on, really fast but at the same time uh, relentless um how do you see because i perceive it uh like i i can foresee a couple of years of instability for many other countries in africa seeing what's happening in in this if for whatever reason uh like the governments in in especially in friend like former french colonies because this <laughs> we have to remember that they're all former French colonies mm. in the last years. Um, and there's this anti-French sentiment and so on. Like I could foresee something else going on or like even some, there's been some talks of like federation of Burkina and, and Mali or stuff like this and political developments that maybe have not been seen in the in the continent since the days of, uh, of the Cold War, basically. I mean, I don't know how you see it. I don't know if you see it as that... Uh, Alter, I think what we will future of Africa. I don't think it will, but what we will likely see is maybe more attempts at coups and then subsequently more authoritarian rule where Africa's already been on a backward slope in terms of democratic backsliding. And so we see more it is true. Backwards from what though? Because I mean some of the Exactly. Some of the as we said, like a lot of these elections are just sham elections. Um but we have seen good examples of democracy. Say so Niger was actually a good example prior to the coup. They had they had a big problem with coups uh from before twenty ten and then after this presidential guard was implemented they haven't had really had that problem and twenty twenty one saw the first handover of power from one civilian rule to a different civilian rule. Mm-hmm. And that was a good example of um democratic progress within Africa. And was legitimate elections and everything. And now we see that massive backsliding. We see authoritarian um, tendencies take over, military regimes take over. And I think that is the general trend 
um, with greater instability, with this disenfranchisement of the youth, with the with the performance of central governments, um, we're likely to see more in, uh, more instability and potential for more coups as well. And people happy that these long term rulers are being overthrown and that there's a chance for change, even though it really hasn't materialized like that. Say, I mean, it's clear that the population, again, like as I said, if it's not uh, necessarily supportive of the coup, it's clearly not a guess. Like the the images and the and the reaction of the population in the days and months after these coups has been of. It hasn't been trying to bring back the previous government, I would say. And for France, it it, it, it it marks a big shift. They already have been trying to reset their relations with African countries since Macron's first presidency in 2017. And this just um, reaffirms that there's a very strong anti-French, anti-colonial sentiment on the continent. And France is losing more and more ground which is creating space for alternative actors to come into, such as Russia, such as these military regimes. But you can have, uh, we always put a lot of emphasis in Russia, but for example, you have uh, uh, technical allies of the of France or the EU, so to say, like Turkey entering the region, Saudi Arabia entering the region, yeah. like you give more funding, you... Exactly. There's different actors which there's opportunities opening up for by by the loss of French influence in the region. So... I think that's definitely what we'll see more of as well. Um, France is still trying to hang on to this uh, relationship that they have because of the economic benefits to France mostly and some of the strategic importance. But this unequal relationship between France and their former colonies has been a huge driver. And so I think we'll see people fed up. Um, but until until the African Union can get some teeth and actually be able to do anything or regional blocks such as ECOWAS, such as SADAC within within uh, the Southern African Development Community, which is where Zimbabwe's elections were, and they came out. Their observers said that the elections were tainted, and and they're they're basically saying that the elections were not were not democratic, but that they don't do anything. So yes, you so you got Africa just congratulating Zimbabwe for exactly elections. South Africa is the biggest member of SADAC. So. Exactly. So. When the SADC observers are saying that it's unfair, but the South African government says that um, that congratulations to ZANU PF for winning the election. So there's this big disconnect between these regional blocs, um, the leaders of these regional blocs, and the population, I think. Yeah. And until they're able to do anything, uh, the West doesn't want to get too involved anymore in regime change in Africa. They tried that, it didn't work. Uh, it it propped up a lot of these dynastic France. exactly, and then France has been the ones that propped up a lot of these dynastic re regimes, which have looted from the population and enriched themselves, and the countries remained extremely poor. Clearly, France has clearly, like without a doubt, France still holds the still holds the the, the currency that you're using in Mali. It still holds the currency that you're using in in West African states. In There's a West African franc and a Central African franc. Exactly, and those like fifty percent. If I'm not wrong, it's fifty percent of the deposits of those are held in France. Held in yeah, France, correct. Held in Paris. So I mean, obviously, there is uh, there is a negative thing there in the relation between uh, France as it, and its former colonies because it is true that it's not a relation of of um, of equals. But 
to be fair, it's not even close to the relation of uh, other former colonial powers to their former colonies. Like, yeah, the UK doesn't have that grip onto their former economies, or at least it's. So, in summary, like we'd say, basically, Niger is the latest in a long string of coups in the coup belt, as you said, but its strategic importance is obviously different. So, we've seen a different international reaction. Then we've seen Gabon have a coup, and much less international um, involvement or any statements. There's been statements condemning it, but very much less involvement. So Niger, Niger is kind of its own case because of its strategic importance. But for Africa in general, I think we're more likely to see more coups, this greater period of instability as the frustrations grow with the with the governments that have been propped up by France, basically, mm-hmm. their ex-colonial partner. And unfortunately, I don't think it's very optimistic because... I saw one quote that said basically what's happening is like people are itching a scab. The scab is this uh, long-lasting dynastic, dynastic rulers and you're trying to get rid of it. You scratch it, you get rid of it, and it feels good for a little while, but then actually your wounds open again. It's yeah. much worse than it was before. So maybe the youth will celebrate today, but it's not necessarily a good thing for for the countries to be able to have these um, coups happening what we need is a stronger regional presence from the stronger African states to actually address these African problems. African solutions for African problems. Exactly. So, yeah. I'm, uh, unfortunately, it's not very optimistic, but... Uh, yeah. Well, uh, then I think it's been um, a really good overview of everything that is going on. Uh, maybe in the future we can talk a little bit more about the uh, Russian influence in Africa since the war or since the invasion of Ukraine, or uh, we can talk a little bit more about the youth and how does the youth perceive its leaders in, in Africa and so on. But for now, uh, thank you very much, Rona, for another wonderful talk over here. Thank you, no, it was very good. And uh, we hope that uh, you guys over there uh, were interested in the topic. If you have any comments, just let us know. And again, we're back. Summer is over. <laughs> Working time is here. So uh, you'll hear more from us and you will see more from us in our social media in the upcoming weeks. The Geopolitical Pickle is created by Ronan Wordsworth and Juan Francisco Muñoz, two Geopolitical Studies postgrads from Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Follow us on Instagram at The Geopolitical Pickle or Twitter at The Geopickle for more content and follow us on every podcast platform.